So whenever there is a manifesto, the public should know what's in it. The public should know what motivates evil. I'm glad that we have clarity on what happened in Jacksonville. Nashville, we would like the same. I'm Tommy Laren, and the show starts now. Three black Americans were gunned down and murdered in cold blood in Jacksonville, Florida by a man, a monster, who set out to slaughter black people. He left behind three manifestos that, along with the swastikas on his firearm, show beyond a shadow of a doubt he was racially motivated. We know that because the sheriff was honest with the public. The sheriff didn't attempt to coddle, shield, or otherwise cover for the man, and wouldn't you know it? White people haven't asked for the manifestos to be hidden. We haven't made the shooter or the white race out to be the victims. That would be senseless, inappropriate, insensitive, and stupid. Jacksonville, America, the world at large, knows what motivated that man's evil. Here in Nashville, though, we're still waiting for transparency for the trans shooter's manifesto for answers. We haven't been given any, and that's BS. But there's more to discuss with this hate crime, this hate murder that went down inside that Jacksonville Dollar General. It's been reported that before this monster targeted the Dollar General, he first approached the campus of Edward Waters University, a historically black institution just two miles down the road. But school security reportedly turned him away because he was acting suspicious. So what did he do? He went to a soft target instead, a Dollar General. Now, while some of the media and certainly on the anti-gun, anti-two-way left will use this latest example of gun violence to push for more gun infringement, my next guest says the opposite. In fact, he maintains that all gun control is racist. Maj Toure, the founder of Black Guns Matter, joins me now. So, Maj, when this all went down, I was obviously following you on social media. I know that you're obviously very passionate about it. But besides just talking about it and what led to it, you actually are talking about the solutions, making sure that people are trained, making sure that people can defend themselves. So tell me why that's important and why nobody else in the media seems to be talking about that aspect of it all. Because their angle is to make sure that they can de-arm certain uh, populations of America. It's one thing to say, I saw a few people talking about this conversation around, oh, these racists are getting access to guns. Florida's actually very pro-gun. The problem is that happened in North Jacksonville, where there's a predominantly black population that has been conditioned to believe that gun ownership is racist, not gun control. So in essence, what they're doing here is advocating because there's weirdos and utilizing the Rahm Emanuel approach to say, uh, let no good crisis go to waste. So they're not interested in actually presenting a solution, which is more armed, safe and responsible American citizens in these demographics. They want to utilize it to talk about um, why we should have less firearms. And if they, I, I talked to law enforcement while I was down there at the vigil, Governor, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis was there as well, as well as some other community leaders. And one of the officers said, man, as soon as this call came over, the first thing that the guys at his precinct said, man, if there was one person that was there and that was armed, this situation goes a different way. So um, extreme leftists, because I don't want to paint any American that happens to currently still be Democrat for whatever reason. I don't want to paint them as a part of the problem. But those extreme leftist propagandists are not interested in uh, the solution. They are interested in pushing a narrative. And that's why we get in that conversation there. Yeah, we know that that's always the go to there. Um, to blame the gun. And then, of course, you've got political leaders like uh, 
Governor Gavin Newsom in California sending out tweets that, oh, look, here again, we have this problem. That's why we should take away all guns. Obviously, your approach is much different. And I know that your motto for a very long time actually has been all gun control is racist. So I'm sure that you get a lot of pushback on that because it's a very aggressive statement to make, but a very true one. So when you're in Jacksonville, when you're talking to people, to community members, and you say, hey, listen, all gun control is racist, make sure that you exercise your Second Amendment rights, get trained, get educated. What does the response been to you? The hood already get it. The hood understands it the same way. They just didn't have many people to say it out loud. The same way that the hood already understood that there was two tiers of a justice system. Right now, we're seeing that in the uh, so-called trials uh, to and, and indictments towards you know President Trump. Um, the hood already understood it. There is a two-tier tier justice system. The hood, when we go, hey, simple possession of a firearm, not robbing, raping, or killing, or anything like that, because we're hard on actual crime. The hood understands that, hey, if I live in a rough neighborhood and I have a firearm to defend myself, why am I getting arrested for possession of a firearm? Why are they treating me like a criminal because I have a firearm? So when we talk about racists, because a lot of people make this mistake, they either go one way or the other. They say, Every single thing in America is a racist or absolutely nothing in America is racist. Those extremes are incorrect. When we can showcase how the racist practice of gun control is not only racist, but unconstitutional, we can highlight something that actually is. And if you're opposed to systemic racism, you should be opposed to that. So we don't get that pushback in the community because the community already knows. It's akin to years ago when we saw the Rodney King beating by corrupt portions of law enforcement. And I want to be clear that I highlight corrupt portions. If officers are taking that job and they're saying, I want to catch ba actual bad guys, we 100% support and salute those guys. But when we saw corrupt portions of law enforcement brutally beat Rodney King, everybody else outside of hoods across America, and I'm not talking about just black communities, White communities have hoods, too. When we saw that, everybody else seemed to be like, you know, like shocked. But we were like, yeah, that's a Thursday in a lot of places when you uh, are exposed to corrupt portions of law enforcement. And so that distinction is key that we highlight. Hey, these things are there. The communities know they're there, but everybody seems to want to be late to catch up with it. And again, the best example that I can give is what's happening right now with President Trump. We are literally seeing a weaponized DOJ and rogue uh, state level, you know, so-called authorities attempt to make sure that Donald Trump goes to jail for questioning elections, even though Democrats did it, too. So this is what happens. This is why we don't get pushback. Huge shouts to everybody that was there that showed up in, in, in a short period of time. But we have to make this a norm. We, we have to stop thinking that black guy, black person, poor person, a poor white person, poor Asian person with a firearm. If you have a firearm, you better law enforcement, the military or a bad guy. You can be just an American citizen that wants to defend yourselves from clearly. This dude was clearly racist. This young kid was clearly racist. He writes the manifesto. He says, I want to kill black people, and I'm paraphrasing, but same thing in Buffalo, New York. I want to kill black people. I'm going to go to an area where there's a bunch of gun control because gun control is started in black communities. It directly targets that area to not allow those demographics to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Even the bad guys know that. So we have to make sure that we're doing things to actually present that solution. So when a bad guy, a racist, and I, let me, let me, because I know some of the followers will say, well, only, only the white guys must be racist. No, 
The definition of a racist is someone that believes that one group of people based on skin tone or lack of skin tone, whatever, is inferior or superior to another group. So if you're a black racist and you want to go shoot up a bunch of white people in a wherever, I want those white people to have firearms to kill you, to stop the threat. If you happen to be in those low income communities that and you have a weirdo like this guy or the guys in Buffalo, you should have the means to defend yourself. It can no longer be, you know, the exception to the rule. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I hope that that message is getting out because there are a lot of people in the black community that are being used as pawns by the DNC and the Democrat Party as we go into another election season to talk about gun control and gun violence and completely spin the narrative. But you brought up Donald Trump several times. I want to go to that. So you brought up the mugshot. You know, I, I saw that you were proudly, you know, supporting that mugshot. I think a lot of Americans that don't even consider themselves Trump supporters saw that mugshot. And maybe it might have changed their, their minds a little bit. And I'm wondering if it's going to resonate, Donald Trump himself, resonate with the black community or other disenfranchised communities that feel like the justice system is unfair. Is that mugshot going to do him well to bring in more people into the Trump fold come 2024? The mugshot doesn't do it. It's just an exclamation point on what the hood already felt before extreme leftist media painted Donald Trump. And we're talking about Donald Trump. We got to separate two things. Donald Trump dealt with the black community with respect and agency. So there's a difference between however you feel about Donald Trump, there's a reason why there's over a hundred songs in hip hop history that relate to Donald Trump. When leftist propaganda that did not want him to be in that position because they did not figure he'd play ball the same way, and he didn't, then they started their media campaigns to say, this guy's evil, so forth and so on. I don't care if Donald Trump is racist. I go by results. If I have the best plumber in the world and he happens to not like me, but he likes my money, that's why I'm hiring you, okay? Saying this to say, it's not about whether Donald Trump's mugshot will actually do that. It's just an indication that what we said was right. This system, Democrat and sometimes Republican, will attempt to unfortunately try to package certain people that they deem as the other or on the other team. They won't play by the rules to deliberately try to uh, incarcerate or unjustifiably charge this group of people. Nobody knows better about that than poor, hardcore working class people from any background. So it's not the mugshot per se. It's the action that that mugshot solidifies and represents of I, it's it's like literally everybody in the universe found our I told you so button with this mugshot. Outside of that, we're in support of Trump and the rumble that he's getting. What we're not in support of is the lack of consistent outreach that the GOP has failed to do. I was at the White House a few years ago uh, where Donald Trump said I was there. He said African-Americans built this nation. He said we all built it. But African-Americans had a special part in building this nation. And I think you're just now starting to get uh, credit for that. Of course, leftist media never talks about that. But that's just him saying that thing openly that, to be perfectly honest, very few presidents in that space have said. That's just the reality. So we're in support of someone being uh, persecuted unjustifiably. We are not in support of weak leadership in the GOP not doing any outreach in the community. I saw today uh, some political pundits said there'll never be a time that urban America or black America will by and large 
vote for Republicans. Newsflash, buddy. The Republican Party started as the party to end slavery, as well as it was a third party, as well as overwhelmingly black people originally voted Republican. That is the reality of the situation. The problem is the GOP currently, not Donald Trump, Jesse Jackson, Don King, anybody that you want to call a leader in the black community. The GOP currently has had horrible leadership and you have certain pundits that are on one hand say these thick dog whistles about white folks after saying we don't see color, then saying, oh, the black males can win the vote for Donald Trump. But you have failed to do any outreach in these black communities and you're doing the same thing that the democrats know and that's what we're waking up to donald trump has never came into black communities being rude disrespectful he's spoken to our communities with agency and as a libertarian i got it i'm just objective enough we don't want anything on a national level as a libertarian <laughs> however if we're going to be solid americans we have to be objective about that reality Last thing I want to talk to you about, because I, I have to get your reaction to it, because there was a lot of uproar, I'm sure you saw it, after Jason Aldean put out that song, Try That in a Small Town. Now, Maj, you don't come from a small town, but I'm wondering if that song resonated with you, because it certainly did with me. I'm from a small town. I didn't take it as, oh, vigilante justice. I took it as, hey, listen, you come into a community that protects its own, you're going to get a rude awakening if you pull that crap in this town, in this community. What was your reaction to it, and what was your reaction to the outrage to that song. We saw some weirdo attempt to attack a man in a, it may not be necessarily a small town. I'm from Philly, it's not a small town. But when people in a community see you doing something wrong, like that guy that accosted that dock worker down, you know, and, and the community, and they just happened to be black, the community said, no, you're wrong. This guy's trying to do his job and we're not gonna just let you abuse him. That's where we showcase that that music transcends this so-called race component, right? They He tried it. The guy was respectful. He tried it. The community said, no, you had people swimming across the little rake, lake or river to try to fight against that. That's what that message meant. I think that extreme leftist propaganda will try to attribute racism in some places where it doesn't necessarily need to be. Now, do I think that Aldine could have chosen a better location to shoot the video. Do I know that he knew the history of that place? That's up for debate and conversation. But the reality is the words in the song, anybody that said that that was a racist dog whistle, they could use that song as the backdrop for all of those folks that beat up those gang of people that were trying to gang up on that hardworking dock worker that politely asked this guy to just move his boat. So we have to make sure that we take everything away from a leftist. I want to take everything from them. They've taken the rainbow. The rainbow was a symbol of God's promise. They took it. They've taken the word liberal. Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Frederick Douglass. These guys were about liberty. That was the original definition of classic liberal. We have to be in the business of outreach in these communities. They took the black community. The black community was by and large independent thinking Republican folk or liberty based folk. We have to make sure that we take every single thing from the left that they'll try to utilize, appropriate it for their thing. We have to take every single thing from them while respecting them as Americans, because this is not every single person that currently identifies as a liberal. This is not. It's the leadership and those people that control the propaganda networks. Take every single thing from them and give them absolutely nothing. I love the fact that we took that song back. I love it.
I love it too. And I always love your analysis of all the hard hitting topics. I knew that you'd have some great takes for us. Maj, as always, thank you for going to the communities, making a difference, getting out there and doing the hard work. You're always a friend to me and a friend of the show. And good luck out there. We hope to see you soon. Give singo.com forward slash solutionary support, guys. We do these classes for free to all support the work. Thank you so much, Tommy. Thanks, Maj. And I've been to those classes and you do a fantastic job. We'll talk to you soon. All right, continuing with our Trump mugshot coverage, his campaign has reportedly raised over $7 million since that mugshot was released, and that's not all. His official website wasted no time getting all the accompanying merch up for sale. You know, I can't knock the hustle, but will it be enough? Because just a few weeks ago, I told you about the $40 million plus in donation cash his PAC has spent on legal fees thus far, and that's just going to look like chump change now that a fourth indictment has hit the books. Raising seven when you've spent 40 means that the math ain't necessarily mathing. And while Trump is still far and away the front runner, some polls suggest Ron DeSantis is slowly working towards closing the gap, possibly. So where does that leave the GOP? Joining me now with his take on it all is host of the Ben Dominesh podcast, Ben Dominesh. So Ben, I want to jump right on in to the mugshot seen and heard around the world. Now the Trump campaign reportedly raising over $7 million dollars since the indictment, the booking, the mugshot was released. So it feels like it's really Teflon Don right now that he's continuing to gain ground. But now we've got announcement, you know, that these trials are really going to butt up to all the major milestones in the primary and general election season. So what's your take on how this is going to go down? Is it really going to keep helping Trump or is there going to be a point here where maybe it starts to slightly fade away? You know, I think that first off, you know, we've seen a complete sea change from where we were last year in terms of the attitude toward Trump uh, among Republicans. They have become far more invested in him. You know, he obviously has the lead that he's had in national polls and the like. Uh, but a big part of that has been what they view as persecution by this government uh, against him, uh, targeting him in so many different respects. Now, you can argue that he's given them a lot of rope to do that. Uh, and I think that that's a fair argument. It's one certainly that I hold to. But at the same time, I think it's done nothing but help him in the course of this primary. And the idea that you are going to have a sea change among people who feel very strongly that he's being persecuted, targeted, uh, you know, martyred effectively for the cause. I just don't think that's going to change between now and when people start voting. What I do think is going to be interesting, though, is whether these cases and the degree to which they are going to invade the process that is going to play out next year uh, turn into something that Republican voters, but also a lot of right-leaning independents, uh, view as being something that makes him incapable of becoming president again. They don't uh, see it as being something that will help him against Joe Biden, certainly, if you assume that that's still going to be the Democrats' candidate. Uh, and they also, you know, are going to be something that's a distraction, not just when it comes to his time, as you made reference to, but also to his resources, to his money. You know, all that $7 million is going to get eaten up. It's going to get eaten up by all these different lawyers and all these cases that he's having to fight. And I think that that's what Democrats want to do. They want to effectively have him be the nominee and then have him so distracted by all these personal fights that he's incapable of, of you know, running effectively uh, a 2024 presidential campaign. That's a big bet, though. And Democrats have been wrong in the past when they've made similar bets. They were wrong in a number of cases uh, just in this last midterm when they made bets about who, you know, picking people in primaries who actually came very close to winning. 
And I think that this is another situation where they're running a real risk that by going down this road and participating in this lawfare, they're going to end up promoting someone who they say over and over again, they tell us he's an existential threat <laughs> to the American democracy and the like. Uh, and yet they're going to be the ones, I think, who've helped him win that nomination, assuming things uh, continue on the path that they currently are on. That's what really my concern is on all of this. And, you know, I think that we look at it really one dimensionally when you look on social media. It's either you're a Trumper or you're not. You're a Trumper or you're disloyal. You're a rhino, you're a never Trumper. So I think that's a little frustrating because there's a lot of us that exist somewhere in the middle where we're trying to sort all this out and we're a little frustrated. Me personally, I'm frustrated because Whereas I would love Trump to be my president again, I've been a longtime Trump supporter. I'm very concerned when I look at national polls and I see 63% of Americans saying that Donald Trump should be indicted four times. When I see Americans reacting that they're very concerned about his legal problems when it comes to a general election and reelecting him, that gives me cause for pause. And I don't know how we ever correct the swamp the deep state, whatever you want to call it, if we can't win an election. So that's why, for me, my eye wanders over to Ron DeSantis, who's actually gotten rid of activist DAs, who's actually effectively drained the swamp to a large extent in Florida. And I look at that and I see, boy, if Ron DeSantis could be our nominee and our president, we could still support Trump and his legal battles and his legacy, but maybe that's the better approach to actually get something done for the American people. But I fear that because there is this circling of the wagons around Trump, that we're not going to have a chance to get there. And that's where I'm wondering what your thought is, your analysis. Are voters going to change these hardcore, immovable Trump voters? Do you think as we get closer that they're going to be maybe not so willing to take this giant risk? You know, you, what, you're, uh, uh, what you're acknowledging there, Tommy, is really that it's kind of ahistorical for us in America to see so much tied up on a day-to-day -day basis with a politician. I mean, your average American historically didn't feel this way about the leadership of their party. And it's not something that's very natural for us. You know, we we don't have that kind of tendency as a nation. And I think that one of the things that's really happening is that because of that uh, divisive nature of the former president, we're not even having the kind of conversation that we should be having practically about what we want to see from the next uh, presidency. I mean, one of the reasons that I think you know you should actually consider moving on from Donald Trump, even if you are a Trump supporter, is that he's only able to serve one more term. It's going to take a lot more than one term to fix the problems that we have in this country, and particularly the problems that have been accelerated under Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And you know, the other thing that really makes me concerned is that for all these Republicans who care about winning, they seem blind to the fact that the Democrats haven't even started running ads against Trump yet, and he still has those numbers. Mm -hmm. He still has those negative numbers. You can see national polls where he's tied with Joe Biden right now, but they haven't even started going after him in the way that they're going to, in the way that we, we always see the machine come uh, and, and move against somebody who they really hate. And that's not just the deep state. It's not just the Biden administration. It's their allies, the media. It's their allies in culture and in pop culture. It's going to be everything, just you know, throwing everything that they can to keep Donald Trump from getting back to the White House because they hate not just him, but everyone, everyone who you know feels that he represents them. All the voters out there who were, you know, wanted to send a shock to the system, a message to the system back in 2016. But there are certain hard, true facts about the way that the electorate has changed. 
In 2016, more than half of voters were people who were born before the uh, year 1965. What we're looking at right now in terms of the predictions from some of the smartest pollsters, analysts out there, is that we're looking at an electorate going into this coming year that's going to have as perhaps as low as 40% of the electorate be born before 1965, and a third of it is going to be born after 1980. Winning a lot of those millennial voters winning younger voters, people uh, who have concerns now uh, that are just coming to the fore in terms of what they're seeing going on in our schools, what they're seeing in terms of the woke agenda that DeSantis has been targeting in Florida. Speaking to those concerns, I think, is going to be of paramount importance in terms of charting this new direction for the Republican Party and winning over voters uh, who they frankly need in this new coalition. I'm not sure that the former president can do that. Speaking of Ron DeSantis, you know, I think that his campaign got off to a bumpy start. I think he's doing better now, but I think part of the problem with Ron DeSantis is he has so many advisors, he's listening to so many people, that sometimes he ignores his natural instincts because I think at the debate last week was a perfect example. I think someone told him, like, smile, smile as much as you can, make yourself look normal, make yourself look pleasant, make yourself look chill. And I think he got in his own head about it, and that's when he comes off awkward to me, is when he's trying so hard. But it was actually Matt Walsh that posted last week, and I thought it was incredibly spot on. He said, what Ron DeSantis needs to do is he needs to come onto that next debate stage and say, listen, I'm not your homecoming king, I'm not Mr. Charisma, I'm kind of a nerd, I'm kind of awkward, <laughs> but I'm kind of an awkward nerd who loves this country and get stuff done. So if you're looking for someone to get stuff done, I'm your guy. But I'm wondering if he can get over that hump because he from the out the gate has been riddled with issues because they've been labeling him disloyal since before he announced. But do you think that he can pick up some steam and actually give Trump a run for his money at this point? You know what? I really think he can. And one of the reasons I think he can is actually because of that debate performance because I think you saw in it, hey, wait a minute. If you weren't someone who's super online, paying attention to everything that's happening within a campaign, who's in charge, who's getting listened to, that type of thing, I think that you would see that performance and say, this guy seems fine. It doesn't seem like, you know, what's what's the, the idea that there's some sort of uh, falling apart or anything like that? It just doesn't, it didn't come across that way to me. I also think that one of the things that's so fundamental about this is that was a debate that I felt like played to a, a number of his strengths. The thing that made him so popular in Florida was not so much the stuff that gets national play in terms of his fight with Disney or things like that. It was a lot of it was kitchen table issues. It was, you know, him fighting to make sure that it was cheaper for families to be able to afford the different things, you know, strollers and diapers and everything that they needed to take care of kids, a, a kind of pro-family agenda that he had at the state level that really gained him a, a ton of popularity and helped him turn, you know, a state that was certainly, uh, you know, blue at one point, purple for a long time. It's now deep red. Uh, and that's because of his policies. I think that People want to be able to have confidence that there's someone who's not just going to fight for them, but who's going to be able to actually deliver. And I think that your point is, is well taken, uh, making it clear to people, hey, if you want someone who's actually going to deliver on, on these promises, who's not just going to make you feel good because of a tweet or yelling about something, but someone who actually does something, then I'm your guy. I do too. And I think that's his strong suit. I, I think he could perform so well in a general election. I have a lot of confidence in him. But I think there's something else that's kind of standing in his way, and I want to get, finally, your take on Vivek. So 
He is the media darling right now. I think it was today he was on TMZ. I mean, he's a little bit of everywhere. He's very well-spoken. I've worked with him before in the building at 1211 on Outnumbered. I think he's a great guy. I think he says a lot of the right things. But as this is playing out to me, I feel like he's doing this more for attention and more to be a shock jock and get that media time than he is because he actually thinks he can win. And there's part of me that also feels like he's kind of just running cover for Donald Trump and keeping Ron DeSantis out of the way. But what's your take on him? Are you impressed? Well, on the one hand, I'm impressed by the arguments that I heard from him before he was running for president. I've interviewed him several times on my own podcast. You know, I certainly, you know, share with you feelings that he's a very smart guy uh, and very capable of defending uh, conservative ideas, some libertarianish ideas and the like, which I certainly appreciate. At the same time, I feel like he's one of these people who really is just like a media figure. He he wants to tell people what they want to hear. And a lot of the time, I think people, you know, they're they're uh, very sympathetic to the idea that the existing political structure is corrupt and stupid and wrong. And they're they're right to feel that way. But the response to that can't just be to call that out. You have to actually offer an alternative. I think with Vivek, unfortunately, a lot of the alternatives that he offers are just an inch deep in terms of his response to things. Just this weekend, he you know went on uh, on Meet the Press and was explaining what he would have done differently than Mike Pence. And he ran through a list of things that, man, I mean, it would be nice if you could just do that as vice president, but that's not the way the Constitution works. It's not the way the law works. All the different changes he wanted to make with the way that people would vote and the like – it's completely speculative. And it's the kind of thing that you hear from pundits who aren't very good at their jobs or who don't particularly care about whether the ideas they're throwing out there are workable or not. And frankly, I find that to be very irritating at any level of government, but certainly on the stage where you're contending to be commander in chief. So for those reasons, I really discount Vivek. I think that he's a flash in the pan candidate. And I think that once people start digging into and paying attention to the actual ramifications of his ideas, I think that they'll see that there's just not a lot of there there. Uh, and, you know, people have compared him, obviously, Chris Christie, who I'm no fan of, compared him to chat GPT. But I do think he's kind of like, putting uh just putting questions out there you know your ask jeeves candidate or what have you you know where you turn to the ai and you say just spit out something that i can use but we know that that doesn't work for book reports and it certainly doesn't work for policy at the at the level of government that he's aspiring to yeah there's not a lot of policy there a lot of talk a lot of things that sound good and he delivers it well, but I think you're right about that. He just says things and people believe it because there is a certain segment of the Republican Party that does just believe that these things can be absolved overnight and then he can just be the quick fix and they don't realize all the red tape that regardless if you like red tape or not, you do have to go through. The Constitution being one of those things, it's very important. Ben, thank you as always for your analysis. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will just have to wait and see how this all goes down. Great to be with you. All right. Telling the truth will get you canceled. And Alice Cooper is the latest example. This madness will continue so long as we as a society keep bending the truth, reality and morals to fit whatever woke agenda these nutcases thrust upon us. It's time for final thoughts. Well, folks, the new leftist litmus test appears to be whether or not you're willing to deny biology, truth, and reality in order to appease the very vocal and very militant minority. The latest victim of all of this, rocker Alice Cooper, who, when specifically and explicitly asked in an interview with Stereo Gum about gender identity, said the following. 
basically that while he understands that there are true cases of transgenderism, he's concerned it's become a fad and a fad pushed on young kids. Bingo, nail meets head. But because he dared to speak the truth, outrage, of course, Vampire Cosmetics, whatever that is, cut ties with Cooper over it, posting this before deleting their entire Twitter account. And once again, the same song and dance and the same lie. If you reject the notion that innocent and vulnerable children should be used as pawns in some kind of a trans social experiment, you are denying access to health care. That's a lie. Opposing irreversible and permanent surgical or hormonal changes on minors is not opposition to health care. It's opposition to child abuse. And we need to start coming right out and saying that. Stop tiptoeing, stop negotiating with pedophiles and groomers and child exploiters. We have a duty to confront this nonsense boldly and unapologetically. So stop using their language. Stop cowering in the corner because you're afraid you'll be called anti-trans. Stop letting these people set the rules. We don't play by those rules and we never should have given this radical movement an inch. We should have never coddled it in the first place. You know, if adults want to play these trans games, you know, let them. But the sentiment from all of us should be, over my dead body, will you mess with children? Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to follow and like OutKick on YouTube. From Nashville, God bless and take care.